Hello, everybody. Uh, welcome to the second episode of Cat and Release podcast. Uh, I'll be playing your host today. Uh, my name is Tom, and with me today are my two friends, uh, Asad and Karthik. How are you guys doing today? Good. How are you? Good. Uh, before we dive into today's topic, you know, I want to wish Asad uh, Ramadan Kareem and to all our listeners that are celebrating Ramadan, uh, Ramadan Kareem to all of you. Oh, thank you. That's very nice of you. Yeah, it's uh, two days in. I'm already feeling like I dropped a few pounds, so looking forward to the rest. And and second, obviously, you know, as people are probably wondering what this Cat and Release podcast is and where the origin of the name came from, um, I want to just give a little shout out to Asad for coming up with the name. Um, and I'll just pass it on to him for it to give us a little brief uh, genesis of the background of how this name came about. Yeah, I, uh, I look forward to raking in the most royalties off of like those naming rights in the future. Um, but yeah, cat and release. So cat is just pretty straightforward. It's a play on all of our first names. So the K goes to our friend Karthik, A would be myself, and T would be Tom. And uh, we thought it was a nice play on the humane aspect of catching whether it's fish, rodents, but doing the right thing for society and ethically and morally and releasing them back. So there's a little bit of a metaphor for how we tackle sometimes difficult, but sometimes comical subject matters, and then just kind of dust our hands off and move forward to the next topic. So that was pretty much it. So Saad, you don't eat fish? (laughs) I do like fish. I, you know, I will say so. I miss the sushi from New York. I, yeah. you know, since since we've moved out here to Michigan, it's been hard to find like really, really good quality sushi. They have good fish in Lake Michigan, don't they? Yeah, yeah, that's true. I, I guess I just haven't been looking enough. <laughs> go go down to the shore. <laughs> I only know the Jersey Shore, baby. Gotta gotta pump pump your own gas and guns. Appreciate the name that you created for us, and obviously for people who are listening who are interested in our podcast please uh subscribe and follow we are on instagram we are on twitter and we are on spotify as well so for today's topic you know it's it's a little bit sensitive to personally to myself and i think to all of you as well um it's regards to the the rise of the asian hate crimes in the country um today and coupled with the most recently uh, the killing of Dante Wright in Minneapolis. So I guess to start off, I just have a quick question in terms of how you guys are seeing this whole Asian crime being reported in uh, the media today, right? Uh, If you think about it, this whole thing sort of started um, back in March of 2020. uh, And the last I checked, there were over 3000 cases of reported hate crimes towards Asian people. And then all of a sudden, you know, the past couple of months, it's been brought to front and center. So my question, I guess, to either one of you, if you guys have a thought on this is why is it only now is it being reported, right? As opposed to back in August last year, or maybe even December, why did it take over a year for this to become center news? Yeah. Um, it, it's really interesting. I think I, I, there's a couple couple things that I'll, I'll throw out there. Um, number one, hate crimes in general, I feel are underreported, right? Like obviously hate crimes against African-Americans have been going on for 200, you know, 400 years here in this country. Uh, usually 
what's reported is when something goes terribly wrong, right? Like when someone dies, um, like like um, the, the person in Minneapolis. And so I think in general, you always see an under or underrepresented or under um, accounted for number of hate crimes. And it's just something that is inconvenient for the powers that be to acknowledge it's out there. It's just easier to kind of tuck under the rug. Number two, I think with Asian specifically, there's a sentiment I would believe in society that, that believes that Asians kind of have it good already. Like they came and immigrated, many of them in the, in, in the last 50 to 50 to 60 years. And they have generally are, are doing well, have well-paying white collar jobs. And it's just not that big of a deal. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm saying what people think, not necessarily what I believe. And so it doesn't seem like it's, a, it's like a front and pressing issue compared to some of the other things that are going on in the world. So that's kind of my, my high level thoughts. Yeah, I, I agree with that in, in general with the with the with the context there. Um, I think it's also helpful for the viewers too, since we've never really peeled the layer or the onion back on the three of us. I mean, I think we would all self-identify as being Asian, right? So I think whether it's South Asian, East Asian, Central Asian, uh, that is kind of a common bond across the three of us. Um, but I, I mean, if you if you're looking at us through this video as opposed to listening in on us, you'll probably notice we all look very, very differently, which I think is a really cool thing. Um, but I think, you know, Tom, to answer your question, like why is it just getting noticed now? I mean, I would imagine it with just the coronavirus, COVID really being an impactful event in the history of this country over the last year. And then like the derogatory false claims that up the up the flagpole to like you know the former president and you know many layers below that all calling it like a china virus an asian virus which are all baseless right like no one's ever proven any of that i think when you have that level of like vitriol and hate at those like esteemed levels it really like kind of pours gasoline on it so like i don't know if like the incidents have picked up in like actual count or velocity i just think they've like picked up more and just like being, being like comfortable, like committing those crimes, right? Because you have these quote unquote role models who are, you know, either directly or indirectly supporting it. Right, no, I, I, I agree with you, right? In terms of calling it a name that it doesn't really make sense, right? Um, but that actually has me thinking for quite some time, right? Um, if the former president didn't call it the China virus, would that have made a difference? Because it, the scientists have proven that it originated from somewhere in China, right? Um, people can make that connection themselves. And obviously having a president sort of solidify that mindset doesn't really help, but coupled with the coronavirus, everybody's stuck at home. Is the attack on Asian people sort of a mix between people are frustrated and then the fact that also the president added fuel to the fire, right? It's, is it one or the other, or is it just somehow because we're in this current situation, which sucks, right? Um, 
and nobody can go anywhere. And it came originally from somewhere in China. They're taking it out, Asian people. I think the former president, or I will just say, I guess Trump certainly inflamed what people felt. But I think the key thing is people already felt that at some level, right? That might've been ratcheted up because of, of what he said, but like, this is an open question for you guys. Like how much of this is the fact, whether it's consciously or subconsciously, that most Americans know that China is like number two from a world power perspective. They're, they're coming for the throne um, and they have a good shot. Although just, let's just be honest here. They have a good shot of getting it in the next 20 to 50 years, if not sooner. And you all, you're hearing things about, um, you know, you have espionage, you have just, you know, their government and culture, their government, like they're, you know, from a communist and kind of more authoritative perspective are at least different in, in theory compared to our government. So how much of you, of, of that uh, looming do you guys see play a role in anti-Asian hate? I would say um, it plays a role, definitely. But the other part I always want to ask is, do people know the difference between different countries in Asia, right? There are so many out there. And just because you look, I guess, quote unquote, yellow, doesn't mean you're Chinese automatically. Granted, it is the largest population in the world in terms of country. It doesn't mean everybody that looks Asian is Chinese, right? Because you have Filipino, you have Japanese, you have Korean, you have Indonesian, you have Taiwanese, you have these different Asians, but they don't all fit in that one bucket. And it's obviously it's convenient for people who are not educated or cultured to just assume that, hey, you are that bucket. And, and people never get this question. That's why I always find it like to be a sort of annoying is that when I, like myself personally, right? People ask me like, oh, where are you from, right? But they never ask a white person where they're from because there are so many different white people out there. Like you can be Italian, you can be Scottish, you can be English, you can be Russian. People don't ask that. So to me that I feel like that is subtle racism and also I don't want to be like too mean, but it's stupidity as well, it's uneducated. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, I mean, I think that's just like basic decorum and etiquette. Like, I don't think it's not accepted to just go up to a stranger, even if you know someone like casually to just randomly out of the blue, be like, hey, you kind of look exotic. Like, where are you from? There's like a quote from The Office, which kind of affirms this, right? Like early on, I think it's season two or season three when Michael first meets Karen Filippelli. And excuse me if I sound like I'm obsessed with the show, but you know, he meets her for the first time. And I think Rashida Jones, who plays Karen in real life, is from a mixed background, right? I, I don't know exactly what the what the makeup of that is, but and he's like, Wow, you are so exotic. And then and then Michael Scott, played by Steve Carell, is like, Was your dad or father a GI or something? <laughs> it's still, I mean, it's it's kind of like what you're mentioning, right? It's kind of like, what is this like shiny, different foreign toy in front of me, which is really just not cool. But I think Karthik. What you're alluding to, too, I mean, there's like undertones of just like isolationist, protectionist, nationalist, like American versus like the big, bad, aggressive bully being China. I, I think that's kind of like what you're going with as well with the jobs being sort of outsourced, you know, 
there's a lot of misinformation on this subject as well. Like I think looking at the other side of it, like how much of our auto manufacturing and production, it's kind of, I'm proud to say that living in Michigan now is back in the US, right? Like when you think about companies like Kia and Hyundai and some of these like quote unquote international, whether it's Chinese, Taiwanese, Korean companies, they're making most of their vehicles. It's like 90% plus is made in the US in certain cases. So I think there's also just this layer of misinformation that's just like really like aged and like antiquated that's not even relevant anymore. That's kind of twisting that knife a little bit even more. Yeah, I mean, it kind of reminds me a little bit of like the, you know, the the McCarthy 50s, right? Where like, I feel like subconsciously the West and namely the US is kind of gearing up a fight against the East. And to answer Tom's question, I don't think most people know the difference between the various countries in, in Asia or certainly like either they don't care to know the difference or when they see somebody, they're definitely not going to be like, oh, that this person is Korean versus Japanese versus Chinese or Taiwanese or whatever. Um, but I do think there's under there's a lot of undertones of, of subconscious um, acknowledgement that like this, this is going to come to a standoff at some point. So I definitely think that has a huge part of it. But from a you know, from that, from what Tom mentioned on the racist thing, like, I think for all of us, like, I know I've been asked that question. I can't even count how many times I've been asked that question of where are you from, right? In, in various contexts. And I, I'm sure the people that asked it didn't mean it, but not all of it, not all of them necessarily meant it as an intentional racist kind of uh, slight, but it certainly is something where, you know, if you're white, it's just accepted that this is home. And if you're not, it's like, well, you came from somewhere else, even though the reality is that everyone in this country, <laughs> outside of Native Americans who, you know, they, they came from somewhere else too, but outside Native Americans, at least in the recent past, everyone from this country came from somewhere else. Right, exactly. And it is interesting, right, to see how, to Assad's point, people are so nationalist and being patriots right what they call themselves even though if you look at the definition of america right it's made up of all these different cultures right because if you really think about it the original americans are the native americans right that's who they were originally and they were sort of driven aside by europeans and then different settlers came in and obviously you have african americans you have uh, asian americans coming in and that's what makes America great, right? And by pitting different races against each other, it sort of creates a divide. Um, and obviously, as we can see over the last year, right, uh, specifically with like Black Lives Matter, um, they're pitting, you know, white people against black people. And now, I don't know if you've seen like the ones that are the Asian attacks mostly are shown on video on TV are mostly African-Americans attacking Asians, even though there are other ones out there, but they've, I don't know why they specifically only focus on the African-Americans. So it's sort of pitting two minorities against each other in a way to create more divide or to divert from that uh, BLF movement, right? Because that keeps happening every day. And, you know, the people who are controlling the media, controlling television are trying to steer that away from them and put the spotlight on something else. And I guess from you guys' perspective, 
how do you see that playing out like in the long run, right? In the next three to six months and to a year from now, what would change? Would it still be the same? Or is it going to just kind of die out because nobody's talking about it and nothing's really being done by the government? And then it'll happen again, say like two to three years from now. I mean, I think we we need and have to have some sort of like societal or systemic change, right? Not just for the BLM movement, but for the Asian hate crimes across the board, right? Like any quote unquote non-white minority is probably going to be grouped into that same group. So I would hope something good comes out of this, like between like the Floyd family, the, um, the Wright family, like hopefully like something positive for the sacrifices that these people have made will come out and change. Like, I, I don't know if that's going to be at like the, you know, driven by the office of the president, whether it's Congress, I think it really needs to be done more at like the grassroots local levels. I, I don't think this is going to be something accomplished top down, like from, you know, president Biden's office. So I, I'm like really excited and fascinated and intrigued by what's going on with, with the BLM movement. I'm hoping it could grow and evolve into, you know, a larger sort of impactful change. Um, but yeah, I, I guess I'm I'm cautiously optimistic and hopeful something will happen, good will come out of this. But I, I really think that it'll have to happen at the local levels. Yeah, I'm cautiously pessimistic. Unfortunately, I think typically what ends up happening with these things, at least in my experience, is that they kind of subside in the near-term future or near-term like over the the course of the next few months and that could be random that just could be uh, media coverage it could be you know police and other folks being more on high alert and people not wanting to get caught but I I do think there's going to be that kind of gradual decline it'll just kind of fade a little bit and then it will pop up at some other point same with you know um with the uh, African-American folks getting killed and by traffic stops. Like, I think it's one of these things where I feel like they come in flurries and then it doesn't happen for two, three months or four months or six months. And then uh, at least on the national level, it comes back. So uh, yeah, I don't think, yeah, I, I don't think it's going to be legislated top down. I just think, I don't think it can be. And, you know, it's, it's a really tough one because it's kind of, you know, even in American history, right. There's, you know, so much anti-Asian, um, sentiment um historically right you had like a lot of anti-chinese sentiment in the 1800s and the 50s with the railroads you obviously had japanese internment camps in the mid 20th century so i think america's melting pot experiment is a really bumpy one because there are very very few countries in the world certainly not at america's scale that are attempting to do what we're doing which is like having you know a medley of multiple nationalities and races try to fit together that I don't know if that's ever been done successfully at scale uh, in our civilization, like across, across human civilization. I feel like that's always been just really hard. So basically you both gave, um, it's a maybe answer, right? It's uh, it's possible, but we don't maybe know, right? Slightly different directions. Yeah. Half full, half empty. Um, exactly. And so, you know, going to that point, because obviously you two have different uh, outlook of how this will play out. And given that both of you have kids, right? And, you know, Karthi, you have two daughters and Asad, you have a mixed daughter, right? So how will you teach them about race and about 
understanding how you'll be treated going forward, right? Because obviously we're not to, um, I don't wanna make it seem like we are in a better position, but African-Americans relatively to Asians are not, not being, are being killed at a higher rate by the police versus Asian people, right? So, but it still have to be cautious because we are still in a way under attack. So how would you guys want to teach this to the next generation? So, so to be honest, it's not like I put a ton of thought into this, but my initial thoughts prepping for the show were that I wanted to be very overt about race. Like I think some sometimes we're like, oh, it doesn't exist. Everyone's the same. Look on their inside, character counts. All those things I think are really good theoretically, but it's just not realistic. So I want to be very overt that there is like race does exist. It's a thing. You can't control um, what different people feel about you, but it is a thing and you should be very cognizant of that as you think about how you engage with other people. You know, for me, I had never really experienced, I I'd kind of experienced fun racism. And I, when I use the word fun, it's kind of like the, you know, Indian stereotypes, um, you know, people kind of making fun of my name, things like that, which is, I was, it certainly wasn't hurtful, but it, you know, it was kind of more fun than annoying. I think when I actually experienced more hurtful racism in my life was after 9-11, right? Because after 9-11, and I, I saw it, I'm really interested in, in hearing what your experience was like. Um, but for me, after 9-11 in Pittsburgh, which was actually, I went to school in Pittsburgh, uh, which was very close to where uh, Flight 93, 993 landed. So, you know, sentiment was very raw. Um, I definitely heard lots of people yelling from cars, passing by the street, uh, you know, calling me Al-Qaeda and all these things. And so that was like the first time I really felt it very overtly. So, um, and so, you know, to answer your question, Tom, like definitely want my daughters to know that it exists and how to navigate it uh, versus kind of having the blinders on. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with Karthik like 100%. I think just from an early age, I think just raising them in the right environment too, right? Like in Michigan here where we live outside of Detroit, we were really, really thoughtful, precise, methodical with where we wanted to live. Like what is a diverse neighborhood? Where is our daughter going to be able to interact with like really like different types of people across the age spectrum, ethnicity spectrum? Uh, sexual preference spectrum, like you name it. And we, we do feel really happy where we ended up. So I think like just that level of, I guess, permeation or osmosis is really key based off of like where you choose to anchor and raise your children, where do they go to school? Um, I think a lot of it comes down to parenthood too, right? So it's like, I am really fortunate and lucky that I had great parents and they taught me, uh, you know, first generation, they taught me the importance of trying to do the right thing. Uh, take care of your family, take care of your friends, don't forget who you are, think about the journey it took for us to get here. That's not just like something that I see in a movie or read in a book, like I actually, I, I really, really believe in that because that's the way I was raised. Um, so I want to try to continue those talks and those emotions with my daughter. And I think when I, I agree with Karthik too, like, I can't relate at all by any means, I'm empathetic a thousand percent to what's going on with the Asian community and also with the African-American community. But for me, there is like a slight parallel, like Karthik said, with 9-11, because 
uh, you know, my name is a very Arabic name and my dad's name and my mom's name and my brother's names are like very Arabic. And regardless of what we look like, I mean, people might think, hey, this is just some like another like white guy, you know, he's Irish, he's Italian, he's whatever. Um, but like, you know, when you're applying for a job or when you're like buying an airline ticket or when you're checking into a hotel, you know, there's this initial screening of at the time, like, oh, uh, I don't know about these guys. So, and I always felt a little bit of, um, I don't know what the right way of phrasing this is, is like, I guess just undeserved, uh, no, undeserved luck or gratitude, I guess that, you know, I got, I was lucky, right? I'm like, I'm lucky because I look like I'm white or I think I look like I'm white. So I'm like, even though my name is Assad, like I could just kind of like flow under the, or sneak under the radar, a little bit of a chameleon. Um, but then like my friends growing up used to go to like an Islamic center, like on Sundays for services, they're all like much darker, right? And like your typical quote unquote, like Middle Eastern or East Asian um, Muslim. So like I always felt bad for them. I'm like, oh, they're they're get they're they're getting this way worse than I am. Like, oh man, I'm so lucky. But like, I didn't really feel lucky. I actually felt really bad. So I'm I've been just trying to think through that dynamic with my own daughter now because since she is from a mixed background, and you know, my wife is uh, white. You know, her parents originally from from Europe mostly, and she's gonna look like a mix. She's gonna be, I guess, further. Uh, whitened I know it's not the right word here but like you know between combining both my genes and her genes so it's like I'm thinking is she also going to feel that same way in terms of identification and and pride and like potentially like lack of pride in certain ways the subculture piece is really interesting like just like of the they call it the whiteification right of society like I don't know um Asad if you ever felt this but I when I grew up, I mean, I was born here in the U.S. My parents are first, uh, I'm a first generation immigrant. My parents immigrated from India. There were definitely many times in my childhood that I vividly remember where I was like, I wish I was white. And like, it was always like this aspirational thing of, you know, can I sound more American? Can I do this? Can I do that? Can I have, you know, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches? Because that's what all the other kids were having. So there's this really, you know, this interesting, like, just kind of at least just like kind of a pivot from um you know even embracing um your own culture and who you are and I, and I'll, I'm, I'm gonna hope to 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 do hopefully you know have my daughters feel more of that but it's definitely gonna be a challenge you guys think obviously I well I don't have any kids but I would obviously want to raise them basically as what you both said right it's to make sure you have that conversation and have that understanding of your inner self, as well as be mindful of what's outside, right? Because um, stereotypes, even though we can be as optimistic as we want to make that go away, and even to your point, Karthik, there are fun uh, stereotypes and, you know, saying that your, your food is smelly or something, right? Along those lines, it's perpetuates it creates a sort of a flywheel effect because people will always think of you as this and then be portrayed on tv be portrayed in books and people just keep talking about now especially more prominent in social media right um that will always exist i don't think that's going to go away but then there's the other side where is if you try to reuse that same logic that your parents raise you right i don't know how effective that is because 
I've been brought up is always to keep your head down, right? Mind your own business. Don't make eye contact. Um, it's the same as like when you're in a classroom, your teacher's asking a question and you don't want to answer, you just look down, right? And hopefully they won't because you didn't make eye contact, they're not going to call on you. That might work in uh, in the classroom setting, but in real life, it's not like that. It's not that simple just because you don't have to make eye contact. They see the color of your skin. And for them, that sort of as a trigger event. Uh, it doesn't have to be, you know, being confrontational or anything. So here's a question for you, like, because I, I think this is this part is really fascinating. It's like this whole contrast between being canceled and the rise of these, like, at least uh, let's, you know, we're obviously talking about anti-Asian kind of hate crimes, the rise of these like Asian, very Asian shows, right? You have like House of Ho, Bling Empire. I'm sure I'm, I'm forgetting a couple others. So you have on one side, you have like almost further stereotyping that Asian families and people act a certain way. They have certain values, and this is kind of a a um, a a proxy to how every Asian person is. And it's just kind of like it's 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 succinctly Asian, right? It's like because a lot of uh, shows and. That Netflix with white people aren't saying this is how every like Irish like you know Irish or American or white person family is. It's kind of almost a parody, but these are like specifically Asian. So you have that side of it on contrast. But on the other side, you have this you know notion of um, like you know I know with um what's his name Hank Azealia the 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 voice of the Simpsons. He's the voice yeah. of Pooh, and they're like, hey, we need to give this to a Indi we need to give this voice to an Indian person. Um, because the person is Indian so like how how do you guys like think about like because I think those in some ways it's it, they're kind of in um, contrast with each other right you have you kind of don't want to have uh, only Indian people playing a poo potentially but then are they gonna is that gonna further the stereotypes like how do you guys think about those kind of competing concerns if that makes sense well I look at it by just not even thinking thinking of that way, right? I deconstruct it as, I don't watch the show, uh, but like Bridgerton, right? From what I've read is that they cast whoever it is, doesn't matter the color of their skin, they just cast it based on your acting skills and your ability to communicate whatever is supposed, the dialogue is supposed to happen, right? Because uh, the main character or the main male character is an African or it's a black actor, right? Back in that, timeline whatever i think it's the 1800s there is no black royalty in that whole uh theme so from that perspective that i think should be the way to go is that you don't look at or you don't cast a person based on their color of the skin you just let them play out right it's the same with the voice it's i know it goes back to like making hank uh be able to do it but it's to, I think it should be based on whoever has the best skill set, right? And obviously there's argument both ways. So I don't know what you guys think from that perspective. Yeah, it's, it's a good good example, Karthik, and question. I, as you were saying it, I was kind of putting both of those perspectives together. Like with Hank Azaria, which I am, I, I, we could talk separately about Hank Azaria and the Apu character and the documentary that came out a few years ago called like The Trouble with Apu, which was actually a really good movie uh, that was just, you know, calling the Simpsons and, and Hank out. But like with him, it's, it's in that excited. It's like, he's almost trying to like unwind a caricature that has probably done 
a lot, a lot of damage to um, the Indian community in this country. As funny as it was probably to some people, but to others, I'm sure it was pretty painful. But on the other side, when you're talking about like these Asian shows and they have to be, I guess, quote unquote, extra Asian to kind of get the point across that this is an authentic Asian show. I feel like they're not unwinding caricatures from like years and years of like neglect or abuse. They're trying to build that like introductory layer, which I think is kind of sad because you would think most of the country would have had a taste of that or a soundbite or access to it already. So I think they're actually, I mean, it's not like they're both terrible, but I would say that um, in that example, like what what's going on with, with the Simpsons and, and with the Apu characters done much, much more damage. Yeah, I mean, at least for me, and I, I can't speak for everybody, like I think the Apu character, and this is where I have trouble with like the kind of, some people call it the cancel culture, right? Like, oh, Hank Azaria has got to be canceled because he, you know, overstepped his bounds and shouldn't have done this. Like, I just have trouble with that because I feel like, you know, for me personally, it, it wasn't offensive, but I know other people might feel differently. But, you know, at some point we're going to have to figure out, are we going to, as a society, get so sensitive about, because you're going to always offend, like it's going to be really hard to do anything comedic without offending somebody. Um, whether it's across race lines, sex, sexual orientation, or who knows what dimension. So I worry about us veering to this uh, place where, you know, you can't really, you know, bend the envelope. And that's probably a conversation for a different day. But um, it's, it's just going to be a really interesting way on, on how this stuff unfolds um, like moving forward. I do, I know there's, we can definitely save this topic for next time, but I do want to add one point is that um, it shouldn't be his fault, right? Like people are putting blame on him because he was the voice. Um, but ultimately it's up to the writers, it's up to the producers, it's up to the directors who's deciding who to cast, right? He put his hand up, they said, okay, you qualify. And then now you're going to make this, uh, I guess, sound and tone that, you know, for us, it's funny, but for Indian people, it might not be, right? So that, I'll, I'll just leave it at that as saying that, you know, there's blame to go around and by putting somebody as a scapegoat is probably not the best way to go. Agreed. I have one last question for you, Tom, in particular, because I think your perspective is really good in this, in this topic, because, you know, you live in New York City, you've lived in New York City almost throughout most of the pandemic, right? And throughout COVID, um, like in, in Manhattan and travel throughout New York City. So like, you know, we read articles in the New York Times, we see the tweets from the Asian community, but just living through there, like, how do you feel? Like, do you, like, like let's be honest here. Do you feel completely safe when you're on the subway? I mean, like the subway seems to be like the epicenter of all of these incidents and crimes. Like, are you kind of, you know, going back to your talk earlier about just kind of keeping your head down, minding your own business and still doing you, or have you changed how you kind of live your daily life in New York City? I, I, I would say it definitely has changed a little bit. Um, granted, one, I haven't taken the subway in over a year, so uh, I don't know what that feels like, but I can imagine because I've taken it pretty much for the last 10 years, right? Um, but I am on higher alert when I'm walking down the street, even during the day, right? If I see some person that just 
sort of look weird or is looking different or like trying to start something, I would do that going, putting my head down and walk away, right? I would either cross the street, be on the other side or walk by fast and try to see if anything happens, right? Um, but I am on a higher alert than what I would normally just be nonchalant walking down the street and minding my own business and looking at my phone. I don't know if that has impacted you guys differently, right? Because I know, Karthik, you're also in New York. Um, I don't know if, I know we are not out as much, but have you changed uh, in terms of how you approach uh, walking down the street and going to places? I, I'm also on higher alert, uh, especially, I take the subway. Like I, I, I go to the office a couple times a week just, to, just for my own personal sanity with two kids now. Um, but I, I, I definitely am on higher alert. And there's this crazy story from, I think, last Friday where in Brooklyn, like a 35-year-old Asian woman like, was close to being pushed on the, on the tracks by someone. Um, and like, people had to help her like, not getting pushed on. Like, this is like, around midnight, but still. Like, so I'm definitely on higher alert around the subway. And, and again, I think this goes back, and I think we should deep dive on this for a future episode, like how the media can just really program brains like subconsciously, just like I'll, I'll put it out there, like subconsciously because of all the videos on anti-Asian crime have been from African-American um, uh, people, men mostly. Um, I think as I'm on higher alert, I think subconsciously, I'm also on higher alert uh, for African-Americans because I think it's been reinforced in my brain just watching these videos that like, and, and I know that's like maybe not kosher to say, but like, that's where I think the media and uh, uh, like is just just plays such a huge role in pitting together, pitting against different creeds of people, and it's something that needs like major major reform. And um, I think a lot of the stuff that's happening now with you know YouTube and and kind of more local decentralized kind of uh, media delivery is going to be I think it's going to be the path forward, but uh, obviously lots of work needs to be done there. Definitely. Um... <clears throat> Speaking of reform, right, um, I know we can definitely talk on this subject for maybe we can save it as a part two or part three uh, for future episodes. I think we should, you know, turn into our mini dive uh, for this episode and which going back to the reform part is, um, as you guys probably have read in the news that Bernie Madoff passed away um, today at the age of 82. And I think he passed away in prison. And um, for those who you don't know who Bernie Madoff is, he was a Ponzi scheme investment manager in terms of he was trying to tricking people into investing in his investment firm, uh, guaranteeing high returns. But in fact, he was actually funneling those money into his own bank account. And by way of faking that uh, high return by simply going out to more investors to collect money to pay back for people who want to redeem and cash out. And obviously that came to an end in uh, 2008, 2009 during the financial crisis. So I guess from, from that perspective, you know, it's, it is a, it, in a way it did reform the financial services industry um, and slowly, but surely. And now if he, I guess, I always look at it as like, if he were alive today or if he were in this era right now, the Ponzi scheme would be sort of uncatchable from, uh, for him 
especially with all the technology, all the way, all the valuation and everything right now, I feel like, you know, he would probably be the richest person in this world right now. Well, I think, and so you guys are gonna have to stop me from going down the crypto rabbit hole. I won't, I promise I, knew, I won't go I, down. I, I, know I, I, won't, I, I won't go too far, but like, <laughs> that's where I think crypto is gonna be, you know, it's gonna completely innovate and reform finance as we know it today and really going to push a lot of the existing financial infrastructure into deprecation because when crypto achieves scale you're always going to have complete transparency about the assets where they are um, how much you have on hand where they're invested it's complete transparency across any investment manager whether you're a hedge fund a individual investment advisor like Madoff or somebody else and I think one of the big things from, you know, even 2008, like a lot of the financial crisis happened because mortgages are so opaque. And so nobody really knows what's in them. And it's just a lot of like subterfuge uh, across the, the finance industry. So I think that transparency is going to really shed light and make these things more transparent to reduce fraud, fraud, but also more transparent to reduce cost and friction, right? Because then it's very, very clear what you're getting into, what you're getting out. So um, I think from a tech perspective, um, this industry is going to move forward by like decades in the next like three to five years. But yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take my crypto hat off for a sec. <laughs> I think I saw the crypto bat signal flash behind the window uh, over yeah. there before you started on that on that uh, on that avenue. Um, yeah, I, 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 the Madoff story is crazy i think right right before we started recording this session like i had no idea that it was 12 years ago so it, that was a long time ago but it seemed like it was just yesterday so for context for folks who don't know the magnitude it was 65 billion which is like you know a shit ton of cash of cash it's, it's actually pretty quite impressive that he was able to do it for so long i think it spanned potentially 20 to 30 years ponzi scheme like the basic principles right is like i take money from karthik I promise him some sort of service or outcome. And I take that money from Karthik and Tom had already like paid me. So I, I take Karthik's money to pay off time, Tom. And that just, that cycle just kind of continues. And you could get away with it for quite some time until there's quote unquote, like a run, right? Where like everybody wants to cash out. And that's basically what happened in 2008. And it's not, I don't, it's definitely not going to be the last time there's going to be a Ponzi, but I think of that magnitude and size, probably, God willing, hopefully no one ever else gets fleeced that badly and that widely. Um, and for people who haven't watched the movie, I'm going to give a plug here. We are too uh, early and poor to have any sponsors on this podcast right now, but like the, the Wizard of Lies, it's a documentary on HBO. It's also a great book. Um, if you haven't read it, it's a pretty fascinating story about just like Madoff, his family, like what happened over time? How was he able to get away with this? There's like just so many interesting layers. Uh, it's not just like, you know, tabloid material like we're reading over the last few years. So um, like Karthik and Tom, we were talking about this earlier, but you know, like there's, there's an impact on the professional baseball team, like the New York Mets. There was actors and actresses involved, like, you know, Kevin Bacon, I think, lost like half of his, you know, career savings, I believe, something like absurd like that. And yes, I'm curious, like, what sticks out to you the most about this guy's run and basically over the last 15 to 20 years 
before he passed away today. Well, I always thought about from a brand perspective, right? Because you have to be so good at what you're doing in terms of not just showing it on a piece of paper saying you can guarantee like 50% turn. You also have to be in a way a smooth talker, right? To convince people that, hey, I am the best at doing this as opposed to going somewhere else. Just give me all your money and I can guarantee you. That's how he built it up to like over 60 plus billion dollars by himself, right? It's not, because if you can look at the asset management industry now, these days, it's usually people do follow one or two people, but most of the time it's like the bigger firms, like a BlackRock, right? Then people are like, oh, okay, I know that name, I'll go. But Bernie made up it just himself. And then people's like, oh, I trust him. I'll just give all my money to him. So, you know, if you take the other, if I, so I'm going to maybe like make a point against myself here. So there's like crypto and the open financial system and all that stuff down the road. But, you know, what's really rised over the past two, three years over these kind of the advent of these like financial celebrities, right? Like Chamath is one of them. There's a few others in the industry where people would literally say, oh, there's a Chamath fund, like I will put all my money in here. And I think that's where like it gets really risky because for people like that, when, if you have a bad year or a bad two years and you have a lot of pressure on you, you start resorting to other ways to generate return, right? And so do you guys think that this is, to Assad's point, this, this may happen again. Like, do you think it's more likely to happen now or you think it's less likely? I, I would almost think it's more likely to happen again, uh, at least, compared to five years ago, just with the advent of like this, you know, going back to our episode one, like this fan to celebrity uh, relationship, is just so much more, there's no, there's no, all the, like it's been disintermediated by social media and stuff, right? Like you can reach out directly to Jamal and ask him a question and he, he might respond to you. Well, I, I personally think it'll definitely be more um, like case in point, Obviously, this is a hot take, but uh, I think the MLS is a Ponzi scheme. Uh, just by, by itself, I know yeah, it's one of the largest, like, well, I guess one of the fastest growing sports organization in the U.S., but they have to pay a $300 million, I guess, application fee just to get a franchise awarded to them. And then they- so You're talking about major major league soccer, right? Because for a second, I thought you were talking about the MLS for real estate, like the multiple- oh. <laughs> so, so that's no, also a big, big thing. Yeah, okay. no, they take your money, the franchise money, and then they distribute it back to the existing owner. So in a way it is a Ponzi scheme, right? They started off with, I don't know how many people, and now they're close to 28 teams, I believe. And That's the I'll way be honest, there's no way there are that many soccer fans in the U.S. In the world, yes, but in the U.S., come but, on. But that's the way that expansion works across all sports leagues, right? Like you pay a, a fee and then that gets distributed across. Um, 300 million per team? This is not NFL. This is soccer. I mean, I, if you ignore the amount for a second, right? Like that's how so I think sports ownership is like a, it, it is a Ponzi scheme. The tax shelter. But, it, but it's, it's, a, it's a trick. It's a, it's a transparent one. I think people that know what they're getting themselves into and basically effectively the current owners are basically trying to always assess, is it more lucrative to collect that new money for a new franchise, um, but split the, the pie, like one more slice, 
or or not, right? But I think that's always going to be the case in these sports leagues, right? Because sometimes that money is going to be just too enticing to pass up if that three hundred million turns into a bill. Like if if the NBA if if the NBA each NBA owner can can split a billion dollars for the next franchise in Seattle or whatever, like they might decide to take that. An extra extra hot take, Tom. I, I see oh. your hot take and raise you is uh, we we won't go deep into this, but a lot of people think that the U.S. Um, uh, social security system is a Ponzi scheme, right? In terms of like the net contributions, being able to keep up with uh, basically the payouts over the next 20, 50, 100 years. But uh, I think we would have to do a lot more research on that before we could start uh, supporting or, or uh, bashing that theory. On, on that note, <laughs> I think we, uh, you know, we've come to the end of today's show. Uh, and obviously, we have a lot to talk about and hope you guys enjoy the conversation we had today and feel free to leave us any comments or suggestions on what topic topics we should discuss next. Yeah. And, and if you like it, subscribe too. Really good seeing you guys. Yeah. I'm going to set up an OnlyFans so you can tip me, but yeah, that's, that's separate. <laughs> All right. <laughs>